So we're turning to 1 Peter. 1 Peter is towards the end of the New Testament. So after Hebrews, after James, if you get to John's letters, you've gone too far. Um, Revelation, your way out of, out of the, the area. We're going to 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. So if you have one of the black Bibles, that's page 874. And in the gold Bibles, that's page 589. And it should be, I hope, on the screen behind me as well. So would you please... Uh, follow along as I read from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we, um, we don't want anything in this moment to distract us from focusing on you and hearing from you. And so I pray, Father, that you, uh, that you would help us, whatever is kind of crowding into our thoughts, into our hearts, that you would help us not to ignore it, but to entrust it to you, to trust you to care for that so that we can, in this time, turn our attention to what you have to say Every part of your word is profitable. Every part of your word is true. Every part of your word gives life and builds up. And so we don't want to miss any of the goodness you have for us in your word this morning. And so I pray that you would give me strength by your spirit, that the words that I say would be the oracles of God, would be your words from, from the word, from scripture. And I pray that you would build your people into people of love this morning. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this, this last weekend of May, it's not a big one in Cayman, but in the United States where I grew up, this is Memorial Day weekend, which is like the unofficial kickoff of summer. So uh, kids are getting out of school. The weather is finally warm again in even kind of the northern parts of the states, which is where I'm from. And kids are just, for them, life is just full of possibility. They've got swim lessons and summer camps and family vacations lying ahead of them. And September, when school begins again, they're not even thinking about that. They just, summer lies open before them. But before you know it, it'll be August. And they'll have that date in their mind. And just every day, there'll be kind of a desperation to, to make the most of summer because they know that before too long, they're going to be cooped up in a room somewhere, having to learn, and then cooped up after school, having to do their homework and so they just they, they are going to want to make the most of the time. When you know your time is short, you want to make the most of it. It's true of summer break, and it's true of life in general. And that's why we want to give some, some serious thought this morning to what Peter means when he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Peter wants us to know that time is short. And he wants us to know that because he wants us to make the most of the time that we have. And he says that part of making the most of the time you have is loving one another, loving your church. 
a life that reflects the shortness of the time is a life in which you invest yourself in making this group of people the kind of church God wants us to be, a community of love, which, as we'll see, is the kind of community that God uses in the world. And so let's look at this passage together. We want to see in this passage the urgency of love, the shape of love, and the outcome of love. And first, the urgency of love. The end, Peter says, is near. I don't know if you kind of picture Peter with one of those sandwich boards, the end is near, written across the sidewalk prophet. You wonder, what Peter, what do you mean when you say the end is near? Is, is Peter saying, I know when the end is coming. I know when Jesus is coming back. Is he saying, it's going to be tomorrow or next year or five years from now? Does Peter know when the end is coming? No. Peter doesn't know. Peter was there, in fact, when Jesus said that even he, the Son of God, did not know the day or the hour when he would return, when the end would come. Peter's not claiming to know more than Jesus. What he's saying is, he wants his readers to understand that in the, in the story of history, they are living in the last chapter. So you can't, you can't understand Christianity unless you understand that the Bible sees history as a story, as one story with a beginning, creation, with an end, judgment, the judgment of the world, and then a new creation, a perfect world that lasts forever for God's people, that the story has a hero, Jesus, that it has a climactic victory, his death and resurrection, his death for our sins, his resurrection and triumph over death. And in that story, we are living in the last chapter, the time between Jesus dying and rising and Jesus returning to judge the world. The next big thing in history is the last thing in history. When Jesus comes back, we will all appear before him for judgment. Some people will go into eternal life. Some people will go into eternal condemnation. And that's what Peter wants us to be ready for. And those, remember, those who have trusted in Jesus, they don't need to fear that day, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago, that everyone who has trusted in Jesus, trusted that he died for their sins, rose from the dead, that he did it for them, and that everyone who's trusted that, who's brought that into their life by faith, they're justified. We learned that word a few weeks ago. It means you've been counted righteous in God's sight forever. So when you stand before God, you don't have to be afraid that he's going to call you guilty or that he's going to send you away. You're going to be welcomed in. So no one, if you've trusted in Jesus, you don't need to be afraid of judgment. But, the Bible teaches, even Christians will be judged. We will stand before God and give an account of ourselves. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says in Romans chapter 14, for we, Christians, will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Each of us will give an account of himself to God, will be assessed for how we lived, whether we lived for ourselves or whether we lived for him, and we will be rewarded according to how we lived, more or less. So Peter is not saying Jesus is definitely coming back tomorrow or next year or, or even in your lifetime, what, lifetime what, what Peter is saying is he could. He could come back at any time. That's the next thing. And he wants us to be living such that when he comes, we're not going to be ashamed of how we're living, of what we're doing when the end comes. We want to be found doing what matters to God. We want, when we stand before Jesus, to receive his well done. Don't we? So how should we live? Peter gives us two priorities in this passage. Prayer 
in verse 7, and love in verses 8 to 11. So why prayer? Because living faithfully in the last days is hard. It's hard to live as a Christian in a world that says there's no such thing as truth, and there's no such person as God, and there's no wrong way to live except the way that Christians are living where they think that there are wrong ways to live. And if you believe there is a wrong way to live, if you believe in truth, if you believe in God, you're a bigot and a fool and a moron, and you have no place among us, right? That's hard. Living faithfully in the last days is hard, and we will need God's strength not to just give in, not to just go with the flow, not to just kind of quiet down and not make waves. And that strength comes to us through prayer. But Peter says you won't pray unless you have a clear mind. So look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Your, your translation might say, be alert and sober-minded. Peter says you won't pray unless you have really clearly in your mind the real story of the world and where you are in it. Okay, so in, in the silver chair, which is one of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles, in the silver chair, Eustace and Jill and Puddleglum, the Marshwiggle, have, there's going to be some silly words in this, they've gone underground. They've gone into Underland, which is kind of this world of caves and caverns under Narnia, and they are looking for the kidnapped prince of Narnia, Rillian. And, and right when they find him, and they, they're, they're setting him free, they're confronted by the queen of Underland. And, you know, queens in Narnia, they're often witches, and this is no exception. So this witch confronts them. And what she does is she throws this green powder on the fire in this room, and it, it fills the room with this kind of sweet, drowsy smell. And she begins to strum this mandolin, and she starts kind of weaving an enchantment over their minds. She says, oh, you have to go back to Narnia? There is no such place as Narnia. This underland is all there is. And Puddleglum says, no, I know that there's a world up there. I know there's an overland because I've seen the sun. And she said, sun? There's no sun. You've just imagined a really big lamp. And he said, well, and Jill says, no, I know there's another world because I've seen Aslan, the lion. And she said, lion, there's no such thing as a lion. You've just imagined a really big cat. And so she's strumming this mandolin and, and the, the children are getting drowsy. They're under the influence of this enchantment and they begin to believe there's no world but the one they can see. And this is what Lewis says. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire. Then he did a very brave thing. With his bare foot, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat hearth. The sweet, heavy smell grew very much less. For though the whole fire had not been put out, a good bit of it had, and what remained smelled very largely of burnt marsh wiggle, which is not at all an enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. Now the world will... It will work against us praying by telling us that we live in a different story than the story we're actually in. The world will say, there is no God. There is no judgment. There is no giving account of yourself to anyone. So live for you. The world will say, the real winner in this story is the one who gets the most money and has the most beautiful home. Or the winner in this story is the one who has the greatest experiences and the most amazing vacations. Or the winner is the one with the perfect family. What it will never tell you is that the real winner in this story is the one who knows and lives for God. Whatever it costs him. And so we need the truth of the Bible 
like the smell of burnt marsh wiggle, to clear the enchantment, to, to clear our minds so we can see things as they really are. The end of all things is at hand. And if we remember that, and if we remind one another of it, we'll be sober-minded, and we'll pray, and we'll stand firm. But we don't just need to pray. Peter says we need to love. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all. Nothing is more important than this. Above all, keep loving one another. Why is this so urgent? Because of what this chapter in the story of history is about. So what, what's this chapter about? Jesus has died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. Anyone who trusts in him will be saved from judgment and belong to him forever. And this part of the story, this chapter, is about that good news going into the world so that more and more people can trust in it, so they can be brought in to the community of those who are living as those who know what's really going on, who are living for the return of Jesus. And nothing makes our witness to that more credible, Jesus says. Nothing in our lives will more show that that's real than the love we have for one another. And we saw that in John chapter 13, which we studied before Easter. Jesus said, by this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, there's something I need to say here, and I won't belabor it. I'll just point out that if your idea of church involvement is kind of pitching up every once in a while on a Sunday, when the weather's bad, or the fish aren't biting, or no one's invited you to brunch, when it's convenient, or if you just kind of bounce around to different churches without ever planting yourself in one, you're probably not doing this. How can you keep loving one another if you don't have another? I mean, who is your one another if you don't have a church? He says, Peter says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another. In verse 10, serve one another. Peter assumes that this letter is being read in a gathering of the church, and when he says one another, everyone looks at one another, and they know exactly who he means and who they're supposed to serve and show hospitality to and love. It's for a community. If you're going to fulfill these commands, church must be more than a meeting you attend. It must be a family you join and stick with. The church is how God is making disciples in the last days, and we're called to love one another above all. That's the urgency of love. So what does it look like? Secondly, the shape of love is it endures, welcomes, and serves. So Peter describes three ways this love shows itself between Christians. First, love endures. It doesn't give up when it's sinned against. So look at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now here's the reality of church, which is why a lot of people have given up on it. If you really love your church, if you get deeply connected to a community of believers, you will see and experience a multitude of sins. Christians sin against each other. We let each other down. You will go through something really difficult, and Christians, well-meaning, will say the absolute wrong thing and hurt you more deeply than you were. Or they'll, you'll tell them what you're going through, and they'll forget, and they won't pray for you, and they won't ask how you're doing. Or you'll share something incredibly vulnerable and they'll tell someone else and your secret will be out. You'll try to make some friends and they won't reciprocate because they have enough friends. 
You'll try to serve someone sacrificially, and then when you need help, they won't be there. People will judge you when you're trying your best. Christians will let you down, not because they're Christians, but because they're sinners. They're recovering sinners, but they're sinners nonetheless. And you will let them down, which is why we need a kind of love that can handle being wronged. Peter says, love one another earnestly. And we could translate that strenuously, intensely, toughly. We need to love one another enduringly. And that means we need to be able to be sinned against. And instead of lashing out or cutting them off, we just cover that and a multitude of other sins. Now, when Peter says love covers over sin, he doesn't mean love covers up sin. Like we just pretend it's not there. If we see someone doing something that's hurting them or hurting other people, we get involved. We don't cover it up. What it means is we don't, end, we don't let sin end the relationship, right? Love keeps no record of wrongs. When we love with this kind of love, as often as we're sinned against, we forgive. We bear with one another. We recognize that every Christian is a work in progress. God is changing us, but change takes time. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So this kind of love, enduring love, says what you did to me was wrong, and it hurt But if Jesus can forgive me for all that I've done against him, then I can forgive you. I can cover over that sin. Love endures. And secondly, love welcomes. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, we often think of hospitality as just opening our homes to one another. And it's that, but it's more than that. Hospitality means seeing everything you have, your life, and your time, and your money, and the place where you live, seeing all of that as being not just for you, but for you to share with others. It means making space in your life, and making space in your home, and making space in your budget for the needs of the people around you. It means inconveniencing yourself for the convenience of others. It's a heart issue, because if in your heart of hearts you think, my money is mine, and I should be able to keep all of it, or you think, My time is for me to use for myself. Or you think, my home is my refuge from other people. I shouldn't have to let anyone else in here. And someone comes to you and they make a demand on your time. They make a demand on your space. Then you might help them, but what what are you going to be doing in your heart? You're going to grumble. You're going to say, I was was really hoping for a quiet night on the couch, and now you're here. You're going to say, I was saving that money for me, and now you need it? Sharing with you is a burden on me. That's what you're going to say in your heart. It's a burden. I'm grumbling because I have to do this. But the love God is calling us to says, everything I have is a gift. I don't deserve any of it. And if I can be generous with you the way God has been generous with me, then I get to be like God. So what do you need? If I have it, it's yours. Ask me as often as you have a need. I'm glad to give. Are we ready to be that kind of church? There are people here in this church who are far from family and they've never been invited into someone's house from church. There are people here who are lonely and they are tired of weekends spent on their own. Are you looking for them? 
Will you welcome them? Love endures, it welcomes, and thirdly, it serves. Look at verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Every Christian has a gift. Every Christian has an ability, some ability put into their lives by the Spirit of God, which is meant for the good of his people. Just like just like your money is not your own, it's to share, and your time is not your own, it's to share. You have a gift that's not your own, it's to share. You might be a great organizer. You might be a compelling teacher. You might have an infectious confidence in God. You might have a deep compassion that just reaches out to hurting people. Do not think that you have nothing to offer. Peter says, each has received a gift. You have something that's meant for these people. And Peter says, we are to serve one another with our gifts as good stewards of God's grace. What's a steward? It's a manager, right? It's someone who's in possession of something that doesn't belong to them, but they've been entrusted something by the owner, and they're responsible for using it according to the owner's purposes. So a bad steward uses what the owner gave him on himself, or he wastes it, right? What does a good steward do? He, he receives what has been given to him, and he uses it according to the purpose for which it was given. And if we're going to be good stewards of God's gifts, we're going to use them to serve one another. Are you using your gift to serve this church? I'm not asking if you're on a ministry team or if you have a volunteer t-shirt in your drawer at home. That's one way serving looks, and we're going to celebrate people who serve that way today, but there are lots of gifts that don't fit neatly into one of those roles. What I'm asking is, are you seeking to use what you have and what you can do to build this church into the community of love that God wants it to be, so that the world sees in us that Jesus is real, and it's good to know him. And so they trust in him, and they come in, and they start doing their thing with their gifts too. Are you a good steward? So if your gift is in speaking, are you speaking to other people the good news about Jesus, the truth of God, whether it's in front of a group, or in a circle of preschoolers, or just one-to-one over coffee? Are you speaking the oracles of God to one another? If your gift is in serving, in doing things for other people. Are you doing that by the strength that God supplies so that when people look at you, they see him? If you are serving, thank you. If you're not serving because you don't know what your gift is, try something. Try a bunch of things and just see where God works, how he uses you, what you love, and then do more of that. But you might not be serving Because until today, you've just seen church as a service where you come to get, rather than a family you come to give, a family you come to serve. And if that's you, then God has joy for you in coming off the sidelines, in getting involved and seeing how he's going to use you and your gift to bless other people. The shape of the life we're called to here at the end of the time is, is this, we endure the wrongs done to us, forgiving and giving one another second and third and fourth chances, not giving up on one another. The shape of it is opening our lives and our time and our homes to one another, especially those in need. It's serving one another with the varied gifts that God has given us. And we won't do that if we're selfish. If we see the purpose of our life as making money 
or maximizing leisure or having the perfect family or seeing the world, if the purpose of your life revolves around you, then love is going to get in the way. And when you stand before God, you're not going to hear what you want to hear. I'm, I'm speaking to myself as well. But we can change. And the way we change is by thinking over and meditating on how all that we're called to do for one another, Jesus has already done for us. Hasn't his love covered a multitude of sins? He made us, and all our sin is ultimately against him, but he gave his life so that we could be washed clean. Hasn't his love welcomed us without grumbling? He didn't complain on the way to the cross. Even on the cross, he prayed, forgive them, they know not what they're doing. He didn't grumble to give his life. He welcomed us so that through him we could come home to God. Hasn't his love served us? He said in Mark 10, I have come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. We will never love one another perfectly. But the more we look into the love of Christ for us, the more we see that he died so we could have this life, so we could have this family, so we could have these gifts, the more assured we are of that love and just filled to the brim with it, the more we'll be able to show it to one another. When Jesus is our treasure, not our time, not our money, not our stuff, the more free we'll be in using all those things to love each other. Jesus makes this possible, which is why when it happens, the outcome is, verse 11, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And that's finally the outcome of love, the glory of God. And that's what you were made for. Do you want your life to count for the glory of God? Love each other. Love your church. Endure with us like Jesus. Welcome us like Jesus. Serve us like Jesus. Do it all in his strength. And if we're doing that, people will see in our love his love, and they'll be drawn to him, and he will be glorified. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we know that even if we have been Christians for 50 years, we have still only just begun to know the greatness of your love for us. And we don't want to stop knowing more and more the greatness of your love, that it compelled you, Lord Jesus, to give your life for us, that it compelled you to come from heaven so that we could see you and touch you and know you, that it overcame sin and death and the grave and the devil and everything that could have come between us. Your love overcame it all. We want to know the greatness of your love and we want to be so changed by it that we can love one another with the same love. And so I pray that you would, this morning and day by day, fill us with your love so that the world can see you in us. And so God is glorified through Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.